uh, in front of you. We will be, of course, looking at Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Um, But as I say, I think having Psalm 37 in front of you will be a help uh, as we go along. Let's just pray again. Father in heaven, Lord, we come humbly before you. We are reminded without your grace. Lord, we stand for you utterly exposed in our sin and need your cleansing, your redemption. Lord, thank you for the Lord Jesus who has stood in our place. And we pray as we consider his words now that in that same way, humbly, but hopefully, we will listen. And Lord, that we may hear his voice and Lord, be take comfort in him as our complete saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On a Wednesday evening at our, our home group, we were looking at that verse in Philippians 1. Many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with it, where Paul talks to believers in that church in Philippines and speaks with confidence that he, that is God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's that idea that believers, Christians, are works in progress. Not our own works in progress, but God's work in progress. When someone becomes a Christian, when they put their faith in Christ, God has begun a work in their life. And Paul says when God starts that work, he doesn't give up. He will bring it to completion for the day Christ returns. When Christ returns, believers, other parts of the New Testament will be like him. So in the meantime, the life of the believer, in the life of the believer, God is at work. God is at work at you, in you, we, in you, if you are a Christian. Another way of phrasing that might be that in the life of a believer, God is weaving a story. A story larger than simply our desires, the goals we might set, but for his purpose, his design. He is the one, remember Ephesians 3, who is able to do more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. It's a wonderfully enchanting and hope-filled truth. And yet, how easily to lose sight of that in the struggle of day-to-day life. When your child is sick again, you need to rearrange your plans or you have another trip to the hospital or the phone goes with heartbreaking news, or simply that ongoing feeling that things never work out the way you hope. Do you ever feel like that? It's always such a botch. (laughs) It always seems to go wrong. I know you're missing Tom, so I've got a Lord of the Rings illustration for you (laughs) at this point. There's that part in the Lord of the Rings, um, two hobbits, Frodo and Sam, are in a dark place on the outskirts of Mordor. And things are not going well, all is bleak. And in the darkness, they talk to one another about the great stories, the heroic acts, and whether those heroes would have set out to accomplish their heroic deeds if they had foreseen at the start all the darkness they would encounter. 
And then they imagine their story being written down and parents getting out the children's book and reading of adventures of Frodo the Brave and Sam the Wise to their children. And it makes them laugh. But then Frodo reflects on their current circumstances and says that those same children might well say as they reach that point in the story, shut the book now, Dad. We don't want to read anymore. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Jesus is the saviour of your life, Christian. He will weave his story. But there are weeks, perhaps, when you feel like you don't want to read anymore. And that is important to recognise because have you noticed many, many of the stories of the so-called Bible heroes have moments like that? Think of Joseph and his story, sold into slavery by his own brothers, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, ending up in prison, not just for a few days while things get sorted, but years. How long were the descendants of Jacob slaves in Egypt? Or that long period that Moses is in Midian before God calls him. Or David as he flees for his life because of Saul's jealousy. We could go on. In other words, in that larger story that God weaves and we read about on a big level, on an individual level, in the the pages of Scripture, but it's true in the Christian's life as well, God weaves his story with often trouble, with difficulties, hardship for his people. That is normal Christian experience. As we consider Joseph's whole story, we can see God's deliverance, his vindication. We can see how God was weaving the story together. Joseph says it himself, doesn't he? At the end of the story, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Not God allowed it or turned it around. God meant it. That is a bold statement. But it comes from the lips of Joseph, the one who sat in prison, waiting and wondering, quite possibly fearing and doubting, trying to make sense of it all. Friends, I start here because this is the context to understand this declaration. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. As I said earlier, we, and we, when we read from Psalm 37, this really, Psalm, is a wonderful exposition of this third beatitude. Jesus' words, did you see that? Look, just look down in verse 11 of Psalm 37. Notice how Jesus' words echo verse 11. The meek will inherit the land. By the way, that word land and earth from Matthew 5, same word in the original. Translated land or earth. But that's, this psalm, Psalm 37, begins, doesn't it, with words that speak of the confusion we can sometimes feel about the way things are in our world and in our lives. See there, verse 1, do not fret because those who are evil, or because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who are wrong. Why do the wicked seem to prosper and the faithful seem to receive hardship for their faithfulness? Why does it always rain on me? And this psalm's message is to hold on to the story. Hold on to the promise and wait patiently for him. So we're going to let this psalm be our interpreter of this beatitude this morning. Always a good practice. Use the Bible to interpret the Bible.
As we ask the question, why does Je- what, what does Jesus mean when he speaks of the meek? Why does Jesus say such a state of living is blessed? And how should that shape our living? Let's let Psalm 37 be our guide. We should be there. There we go. What does Jesus mean when he speaks of the meek? That word meek can be easily misunderstood. Many assume it basically means weak, timid, a bit of a doormat. Weakness and meekness rhyme in the English, which that doesn't help us. Charles Wesley, in his hymn, Gentle Jesus, begins with the line, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Wesley probably chooses mild because it rhymes with child. But mild, again, is a limp-sounding word in many contexts. If you like spicy food, a mild curry is not worth eating. And if you don't like spicy food, you're probably eating the mild curry because there's nothing else on the menu you like. All in all, those associations mean that meekness can seem quite unattractive. Having said all that, I think the biggest problem we have is that we tend to associate meekness in relation to others, other people. But the beginning of our understanding of meekness, at least as Jesus is talking about it, is to understand it not in relation to other people, but in relation to God. To be meek is to understand our lives under the hand of the holy and good God. Look there in Psalm 37. Do not fret, verse 1, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Again, look at verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Do you see? There's a story being told of the wicked and the righteous. David is telling us not to fret. It is not all meaningless or random, the life before us, on the big scale of the news or in your life. Not all meaningless and random. God has got this. Trust him, the psalmist says, verse 3. Wait patiently for him, verse 7. Hope in the Lord. If you like the meek, understand their lives as lived out under the Father's story. He is the author, and so I submit or surrender to his wisdom, his rule, his timing. Notice how much of this psalm speaks of time, and so the need for patience in our lives. The wicked are like grass. They soon wither, verse 2. What seems to be the state of things today will not last forever. Verse 10, again, a little while, a little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land. God is the author, and so, verse 13, despite all the bluster and big talk of the wicked, the Lord laughs. He knows what's happening in the next chapter. 
This psalm is not written to tell God what he already knows, but to instruct and encourage God's people in how to live. To look up, trusting in the Lord, to live faithfully, do good. So by the time we get to verse 11, there is a sense that the context has given us the best possible definition for meekness. The meek are those who choose the way of patient faith rather than self-assertion. Meekness relates to our posture towards our circumstances with a recognition of who's in charge. The recognition, it's not me, I'm not in charge. It's not you, you're not in charge of your life. I cannot demand that the story of my life goes my way. Instead, I humbly surrender to the one who is in charge and I trust him. Just step back a little bit and think about the context in which Jesus declares, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He speaks it, doesn't he, to citizens of a nation whom God had formed, given them a land. They had rebelled against God, been exiled, They'd returned. Promises remained. Comfort would come. Sin would be dealt with and restoration. The redeemed of the Lord shall return. But before the coming of Jesus, there were hundreds of years and the prophets had been silent. No word from the Lord. The land, indeed most of the known earth at that time itself was occupied, consumed by the Roman Empire, the wicked seem to have succeeded in their schemes. But there were those waiting on God, weren't there? Trusting in his promises, seeking to live faithfully. We thought last week about Zechariah and Elizabeth. We meet in Luke chapter 1. Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. Of Anna, the widow, there in the temple for years. Others too, when all seemed lost, hopeless, personally, on a personal level as well as nationally, And Jesus begins his ministry and he declares, bless the meek. Those waiting faithfully, walking through their experience, even though they did not know how it would all work out, but trusting the Lord. All of our lives know uncertainty, suspense. We wonder why things turn out the way they do. We want control. We want to manage. We get frustrated, don't we? When we're not in control. Even angry or bitter. And this beatitude asks us to all consider where do we go in our lives when you don't know how your story ends? Where do you go where you don't know whether that appointment you've got next week what the doctor is going to say. Where do you go when there are redundancies being made in your firm? Think about it. Jesus is saying there is a blessedness in recognizing we are not in control and placing our trust in the one who is. We'll talk a bit about why Jesus calls this blessed in a moment, but... I want to unpack this a little more for what it looks like. It does not mean, being meek does not mean inactivity. 
does not mean letting go and letting God. It does not mean never standing up for yourself or for justice in this life. Now, as we saw in the psalm, meekness is a call to live faithfully, obediently. Trust that God is in control will be evidenced through submission to his word. It's perhaps, well, of course, it's best illustrated in our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane, isn't it? Moments before his arrest, as he prays, Father, take this cup away from me. But not my will, but yours be done. That, if you like, is the picture of meekness. Jesus, with all his strength, all his power, his majesty. Now, when his, have you read that bit in John's Gospel where the, where, where his, um, where the people coming to arrest him turn up? He says, I'm here, and they all fall back. He has, to give, he has to hand himself into their hands for them to arrest him. Such is his power, but he submits himself to God's will. Not used for his own advantage, but for others. He lives willingly under the hand of his father, his father's story. And more than words, do you read those, those hours that follow his arrest, the posture of the Lord Jesus in what follows as he is abused, faces opposition, is lied about, and is let down by his friends. And is able to say, Father, forgive them. You see, we can walk through difficult things in our lives. Many of those things, we have no choice. But in those situations, there is a way to walk well. Not perfectly, but well. Think of Moses described in Numbers 12, 3, as more meek than all the people who were on the face of the earth at that time. But consider what Moses endures as he leads the people out of slavery to the borders of the promised land for for over 40 years. He was so often the target of the bitter complaints of the people. At times they even speak of stoning him. Yet despite this, time and again, rather than being concerned to defend his own reputation, he intercedes for the people. There is a self-forgetfulness that characterizes him, resting in the truth that is how God views us is what matters most. Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4, it is the Lord who judges me. In our psalm, verse 16, better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked, for the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. He is our defense. He is the one who justifies meekness then it's not only an understanding of our situation in the light of God's sovereignty, but also of his grace and mercy, his steadfast love to those who humble themselves before him. So humility, therefore, characterized by mercy to others, because we know how much mercy God has shown us. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this, the man or woman who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and people can think of them as well as they do and treat them as well as they do. He goes on and says this, Finally, I would put it like this, we are to leave everything, ourselves, our rights, our cause, our whole future, 
in the hands of God. And especially so if we feel we are suffering unjustly. The meek. So secondly, why does Jesus call such a situation meekness, characteristic meekness, blessed? I've given you a Lord of the Rings illustration, so I'm going to give you a Narnia illustration now as well. In, the, in, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, Narnia is stuck in what seems like an eternal winter, doesn't it? Remember, always winter, never Christmas. The land is under the evil power of the White Witch, and those who side with her, they prosper in that, in that context, don't they? While those who don't are likely to be turned into stone by her. Yet there are those who believe that all is not lost, that the true king, Aslan, will return. So you have Mr. and Mrs. Beaver who hold to this old rhyme that goes like this, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrow will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. They endure through the dark days because they trust that promise. But it's not the power of their faith that melts the snow, is it? No, the realisation of that promise comes by Aslan himself. As Aslan is on the move, the snow melts. The promises of the Beatitudes, we said this last week, are all tied to Jesus. The blessings come because God is on the move in Jesus. In his first coming, these blessings are secured. In his second coming, they will be fully realized, totally, forever. So here, inheriting the earth, the restoration of all things, is tied not to a posture that earns it, but that God will keep his promise. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Those of you who know the Old Testament know how important the promise of the land was to God's people. As I said, that word land and that word earth, same in the Greek. And here is Jesus speaking to a people back in the land, under occupation, promising the inheritance of the earth, the inheritance of the land. But remarkably, who is it promised to? Those who take up arms? who exert their rights over others, those who've oppressed them, those determined to take the land back by force, no, blessed are the meek. Who is going to restore God's people to their place where they will know God's gracious rule? Who will enable the human race shut out of the presence of God, locked out of the garden since Adam and Eve, to dwell with their God again? The answer is not through human uprising or ingenuity or cunning or a power play. Jesus is saying, God will do it. God has got this. The kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And it comes in Jesus. And so blessed are the meek, living under his sovereign rule and his steadfast love in the good days and the bad days. For they will inherit the earth because God will keep his promises. You see, the meek understand, do you understand this? You have, Christian, a hidden help. Psalm 37 goes on to unpack this so clearly. Verses 1 to 11 of that psalm speak, if you like, of the battlefield in the believer's mind, goaded 
by what they see with their eyes of the brazenness of the wicked. But from verse 12 onwards, the two groups, the wicked and the righteous, are viewed from the outside and their fortunes compared. Line after line mentions either the wicked or the righteous. And we see that while the righteous face persecution, they are not forsaken. While the righteous may know poverty, yet they are wonderfully rich. Friends, take in verse 18 of this song. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care and their inheritance will endure forever. Christian, the Lord not only upholds you, not only justifies you in that forensic sense so that on that day when you stand before your maker, he would say, in Christ you are righteous enter my kingdom not only does that but you spend your days under the lord's care which verse 19 follow it on may include days of disaster may include famine perhaps you know those but the lord knows he holds you by the hand and your inheritance is safe. It can never perish, never spoil, never fade. Not because you are faithful, but because he will do it. He will keep his promises. Verse 34, hope in the Lord and keep his ways. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are destroyed, you will see. Today it's by faith but there is a day when you will see, Christian. Christian, there is something remarkable that this psalm keeps hinting at. Something really encouraged me this week. As you read this psalm, the wicked, their days are numbered throughout this psalm. They're like the grass, verse 2. In a little while there will be no more, we're told, verse 10. Their lives are ticking away. Verse 35, despite the wicked looking like a luxuriant native tree, they soon will pass away. It says, though I looked for him, talking about a wicked man, he could not be found. But contrast, by contrast, there is a time after that, you see, for the meek, for the righteous. Verse 37, a future awaits those who seek peace. The psalm is saying... While time is short for the wicked, the righteous, Christian, you have time on your side. Time is short for the wicked. For the righteous, you have time on your side. Rest in that. The Lord knows he has got this. The psalm can end with that calm objectivity contrasted with the fretful impatience of the opening verse. Look at it there. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is the stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Because they live their life under the hand of the holy and good God. Friends, there is a security promised here that is found in no other place. Sooner rather than later, we all discover that we are not in control. We discover that things often feel out of joint. We struggle and we suffer. We sin and we are sinned against. 
But there is a great security, a great promise in placing our lives in God's hands. To know that you are in the hands of the shepherd. To entrust yourself to him. Remember Jesus' language? as he, he, he describes himself as the good shepherd. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow because they know his voice. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep know him and he knows his sheep. He gives them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of his hand. Do you see, Christian, to belong to Christ is to be secure. So entrust your life to Christ. Take the words of Psalm 37, verse 3. Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture, take delight in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. And then hear these words. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. Your vindication, like the noonday sun. Friends, there can be many things that are hard and incomprehensible in our lives. But can you see there is a way to walk, placing our hands in the hand of the shepherd who holds you, trusting, waiting, wondering, knowing that he will bring the work he has started to completion and his people will inherit the earth. Remember the picture we're given in the book of Revelation, last chapter? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. Imagine that. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. For those who are waiting on Christ, this beatitude will be fulfilled literally. Billions of years into eternity, God's people will be rejoicing that this beatitude is literally true. And the day of the wicked and the sorrows of this life in this veil of tears will seem like fleeting moments. The meek will inherit the earth. So, briefly, I've said some things already. How should this statement shape us today? First question, therefore, we have to ask ourselves is, are you living with this posture of meekness that Jesus describes? Do you trust in his sovereign rule and his steadfast love to you as a sinner in Jesus Christ? Are you waiting on his promises? This psalm describes the meek, those whose posture is to humbly live in God's story. Hard as that can be at times. That's why this psalm is in the Bible. It's not easy. It describes the meek or the wicked. The wicked whose days are numbered. Friends, which camp are you in? Surrender your life to Jesus, the friend of sinners, who would give you peace and rest as you turn and believe in him. Jesus is telling us our lives are restored and renewed through the coming of his kingdom. Again, consider the context. The true hope of restoration of Israel, of peace, of security, was tied to the land, wasn't it? Remember that promise, Ezekiel 6? You shall live in the land I gave to your fathers. You will be my people. I will be your God. That was a hope beyond real estate, 
beyond getting on the property ladder, but of home, of shalom, God with his people. And Jesus says, those trusting and longing for the realization of God's promise, it comes in me, he says. This hope is tied to him. Friends, there will be different views on the nature of the future of that geographical space between the Jordan River and the Red Sea that's so much in our news at the moment. But do you see what Jesus is doing? He is taking that promise. You see the echo of it in Psalm 37 and saying very clearly, that promise is in me. The one who is given all authority in heaven and on earth. The Old Testament promises the land is transformed into the renewal of all things. A new heavens, a new earth. And God's people will inherit it by God's doing. Friends, that deep longing for a place of belonging, of security and peace, that we all have for true happiness, it lies here. We all seek this type of security and satisfaction, but it's not found through asserting our power, taking over, demanding that we are able to live our best life now. But friends, in surrender to Jesus, marveling not only in his sovereign power, but his grace to you, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, but seats us as his table, shares his inheritance with you. So live with patient faith in him. There is real peace. Secondly, live in this story. That's where we've begun. Trust in him. Don't demand the story goes your way. Instead, remember the biblical pattern, the Jesus path. We lose our life to find it. So stay in the story when things go wrong. That is the mark of the meek. Do not fret. Trust the Lord and do good. We're remarking on Wednesday at home group that not only does Paul tell us that God who starts a good work in us will bring it to completion, but have you ever noticed within the rest of the letter, he tells us the shape of the story. Philippians 2 have this mindset. That was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3 But Paul speaks of wanting to know fellowship with Christ in his suffering and so somehow, by the grace of God alone, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Friends, there is a great freedom from knowing that our lives are in God's hands and not in ours. Relying on his promises, dependent on his grace, delivers us from pride, from harshness, aggression, vengeance and turmoil. As we understand our days under God's loving hand, it helps us control anger, changes the way we speak, shapes our hearts in contentment, brings peace. But to live in that story, friends, is not just an individual thing. It has a corporate dimension to it. Because God is rescuing a people. The meek, plural, inherit the land. As people of God manifest in part of being part of a local community of God's people, a local church, the temple of God is constructed for that great day made of living stones, built together as a spiritual house. God dwells amongst us. We manifest his grace to one another through our loving and forgiving and our bearing with and encouraging. Meekness is not cultivated in a small group of chosen friends but in the gathering of the local church where we seek to live 
in love with one another, encouraging, forgiving one another, pressing to the local church. And finally, I said it in the notices, can you see the meek pray? And they understand as well how prayer works. They pray, why? Because they understand they live their days under the Lord's care. He's in control. And so when disaster comes or famine comes, God cares. God knows. God hears his people pray. We cry to him. But we also see how prayer works. Can you see? Prayer is not separate from the rest of our lives. It's not a magic formula where in a moment God speaks to sort this thing out and then he goes away again. No, he is weaving his story in our lives. So prayer is inseparable from the other pieces of our, our life as a believer. The obeying, the waiting, the hard days of struggle. We might wonder what God is doing, but he is at work. And so our prayer intertwines with that. It's there in verse 7 of our psalm. Be still, wait patiently, do not fret. Or from the New Testament, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one, the prayer of the meek. God will come to the rescue of his people. He's coming, Jesus. Jesus has overcome sin and death, and he will return. Blessed are the meek, for they will win the lottery. They will inherit the earth. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to humble ourselves and to see in that promise what grace you have given us. Lord, we do not deserve in any sense the inheritance of the earth. It's a gift beyond our imagining for you are a gracious God and your promises are so lavish. Lord, help us to trust our lives to you, knowing that you will do what you have promised. Thank you that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his first coming, helps us to have even more confidence that your promises are sure as Jesus dies our death and is raised to life. Lord, thank you for your saving plan. Help us to live in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.